Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 57, Psalm 57. For those of you who weren't with us last week, we started uh, in Psalm 57 in a three-part message that we barely got through one point of last week. So we're going to try to finish that up today in Psalm 57. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you pick it up and you cut it in half, it should put you somewhere near the Psalms. And then if you'll find Psalm 57, and when you have that, if you'll be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word, and we'll read all of Psalm 57. And it reads like this, starting in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake by glory. Awake the lute and harp. I will awaken the dome. I will praise you, O God, among the peoples. I will sing to you. You among the nations, for your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our time together. We have worshipped you through the presentation of a license to a young man who you are going to use mightily, we know, in this world for your glory. And we thank you so much for allowing us to participate in that. And now, Father, as we approach your throne of grace with your word. Let us focus our attention upon you, upon hearing your still small voice, upon knowing that which you would say to us today and hearing that and obeying that as we leave this place. So to do that, Father, I ask this of you. You make very much of yourself, very little of me, and let your Son be seen in all of his glory in this place today. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Like I mentioned in starting, if you were with us last week, we started a message called, Does My Life Have a Purpose? Does My Life Have a Purpose? And it's a three-part sermon that we covered part number one last week. And part number one was very simple. It said, God has a purpose. It's just not about you. It's just not about you. That's a message that's not easy for us to take because whether we'd like to admit it or not, we think our world revolves around us. We think our world revolves around us. If you remember the message from last week, and I hope you do, you remember that we looked at the Bible to see exactly what God was up to in all of creation and even in creating us. And we read several scriptures together that made us understand one thing about all of creation, and that is that God did it for his glory. He said that he created the heavens and the earth for his glory. He did all things for his glory. He sent his son to die upon a cross for your sins that you may glorify him. He put the church together in the fashion that he did. It told us in Ephesians and put us all together in unity for one purpose, for his glory. So God does have a purpose in your life. There's no doubt. God has a purpose. That purpose is just not about you. That purpose is about God. 
And until we get it ordered right in our life where we realize that everything about us, everything that God asks us to do, everything that we tackle in God's name is about His glory, until we realize that it's about His glory, if we keep doing it in our ways because we've always done it that way or we think this is best or this is the easiest or we can give money and it get done, if we want to focus on doing things the way we want it done, God's not glorified. And if God's not glorified, God's not in it. And if God's not in it, it's worthless. We need to realize in our life, the only thing that matters is that which brings God glory. We talked last week about the fact that we all have our opinions about things. We all have our opinions about what God wants us to do. I gave you some real life examples. I had somebody come up after and said, Pastor, did you make up those examples you gave about the church? I said, no, those were examples just out of the last two weeks. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the message. I stopped. I stopped with the examples of the things. If you remember, remember the sanctuary is too hot, the sanctuary is too cool, you use too many scriptures. Remember those. I stopped giving examples. And we don't think about the fact that we sit in here and listen to God's message, hopefully God's man delivering the message that God has, and we leave with things in our mind that have nothing to do about God. That's strange. That's really strange. See, we should come into this place knowing there is a purpose in what we do here. There is a purpose in our life, and that purpose is to bring God glory, both in our personal lives and in what we do as a church. Where did things go wrong? Remember I told a story last week, or told the way Andy Stanley explained the message one time about how things went south. He said God was painting a picture with creation he painted this beautiful picture with all the things that he created, and he created man. And when he created man, he handed man the brush and said, Now you paint the center into the picture. What happened? Man painted himself in. That's where sin entered. That's where sin entered. Unfortunately, we've lived that same path in our life. We've painted ourselves in as the center of our world. But we must realize, God does have a purpose. That purpose is just not about us. You see, we need to come to God not looking for the things God can give us. We need to come to God looking for those things He desires from us and through us. So if the first point is that God has a purpose and it's not about us, the second point is this, God has a purpose and it's about what He's doing in you. Not for you, but in you. Psalm 57, 1, there where David was writing, he, he said this, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trust in you. He goes on to, it says, And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed. David does not deny. David does not deny that things have gone south in his physical life. He doesn't deny that there are bad things happening to him. He doesn't deny that he's running for his very life and that all those things that he's seen God promise to him is not, have not come to fruition. He doesn't deny the fact that there's bad things happening. He doesn't deny that at all. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't ask God to remove them. He never once in all of Psalm 57 says, take this away from me. He doesn't ask that those things be changed. In fact, he doesn't really ask for anything at all. This, this is just beautiful if you think about it. What if our prayer life sounded like Psalm 57? What if when we got down on our knees before a holy God, instead of filling him full of the things we want done, instead of asking for the things that will make our life easier, what if we got on our knees and said, God, I don't care if you're chasing me down to kill me. You're my refuge. I'm standing under your wings. Let them come. 
What if we got on our knees seeking the face of God and what it would have go on in our life instead of us seeking God to do that which we desire? Notice David when he fell on his knees before God, when he wrote this psalm, when he thought about all that was going on in his world, he didn't ask for anything. What he does is he makes a pronouncement. He makes this pronouncement of his trust in God and the fact that God is his refuge. Instead of saying, oh God, why? He says, oh God, I'm trusting in you. Instead of saying, what in the world is going on? He says, I don't need to know. I know you're my God. Instead of saying, why is my body broken? He said, it doesn't matter. You're a God that can heal it if you choose. When he said, instead of saying, why is this person trying to chase me down? Why am I having to run for my life? He says, God, every step you're with me because you promised to never leave me, forsake me. He wasn't worried about the things that were happening to him. He was worried about his relationship with God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that when the tragedies of life hit, that you're not worried about what that tragedy is because you know that God is doing something in you even through it. See, what does God desires from us is not another promise of what we'll do for God. And boy, haven't we made enough of those. I promise you, God, you get me through this, I'll be at church every Sunday. I promise God you help this at this situation. You, you, you heal this broken part of my I'll read your word every day. God, I promise I'll tell somebody about your son, Jesus Christ. You know what? God's not worried about another one of your promises to him. The only thing he's worried about is his promise to you. His promise to you. You see, God has made for us some mighty big promises. Some mighty big promises. I just listed a few, and you probably won't have time to turn to them. If you're taking notes, just jot them down. But to those that are his people, he said to them in Jeremiah 30, 22, he said, You shall be my people, and I, I, the I am, will be your God. Is there any other promise that needs to be made? In other words, if he comes and he says, if you believe in my son, Jesus Christ, and you trust him for your salvation, you're adopted into my family, and if you're one of mine, I'm your God. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, unless you mess up. He doesn't say, unless you don't do this thing. He doesn't say, he says, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to be part of my family, if you're going to do that, which I ask you to do, if you're going to be a working part of my family, if you're going to be one who loves me, if you're going to be one who trusted me, guess what? I'm going to be your God. Do you know the ramifications of that? The ramifications of that means you don't need to search for any other one. First and foremost, you got one. If you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a God. He goes on to say, matter of fact, Jesus does to, to those who have trusted in him, to those who have trusted as his Lord and Savior. In John, in John 10, 28, he says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand you want a promise <laughs> you want a promise of the world we live in today we're worried about what the economy is going to do what the president's going to do what congress is going to do if if we shoot a bomb over here are they going to shoot a bomb back when we're worried about all those things in life there's one thing that you are never going to have to worry about if you've trusted in jesus christ as your lord and savior there's not a person in isis there's not another country there's not a president of our nation there's not a governor there's not anybody that can change your relationship with god because once jesus christ has saved you you're saved indeed and he says, once I've got you in my hand, there ain't nobody big enough to climb in and snatch you out. You need a promise from God? There's one. 
There's one for you. So he made that promise. Jesus himself said it. He also said, he also said in John 14, 23, to those who are obedient. Because remember, it's not good enough just to see Jesus Christ as your Savior. He can't be your Savior unless he's your Lord. So with lordship comes obedience on your part. Lordship requires obedience on your part. And he said this in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my words, my commandments. So he makes this emphatic statement. If you've fallen in love with me as your Savior, it will show up in your life because you will do those things which I have commanded. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? He gave his life for you, and he asked you to give your life to him. To give your life to him means that he is your Lord and you will be obedient. So he makes a statement, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Here's the promise. <laughs> and my Father will love him. Wouldn't you like to know that the Almighty God of all creation loves you? Wouldn't you like to know that when your heart is breaking, there's a God who loves you? Wouldn't you like to know when it feels like the world has fallen in and depression has set in, there is a God who loves you? Wouldn't you like to know when you're sitting in the hospital and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with your body, it hasn't changed the fact that God loves you? Wouldn't you like to know that when some of the ones that you love the best on this earth turn their back on you, that there is a God that still loves you? And he says this, he says, if, if you, if anyone who loves me, who in other words has accepted me as their Lord and Savior and fallen in love with me, if he'll keep my word and be obedient, my Father will love him. But he didn't stop there. He goes on to say, and we, notice he now includes the Trinity. He says, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Children of God, let me tell you this morning, God's purpose in your life is not about you. It's about what he's doing in you. And what's the first thing that he's doing in you? He's changing you from a person that's lost to sin, in bondage to sin, to being saved in eternal life in him. And he says that if you will grasp that to the point that you will follow those things that he has given you instruction to, that you will be indwelled. You will be indwelled by him. And don't you know, anywhere God is, there's change. And there's change for the better. And see, he'll come into the house and sweep out the corners. He'll come in and rearrange the furniture. He'll come in and make things a little bit different. But guess what it looks like at the end of the day? Your life will look like Jesus Christ. You see, he comes in and what God desires of us is what David proclaimed about himself. What God really desires of us is that we proclaim what David proclaims. And what did David proclaim? That he trusted God. He trusted God. It's a simple statement. That's a simple statement. But I ask you, look back over the last 24, 48 hours, maybe week or so. Have you trusted God with everything in your life? Have you looked at what's going on in your world and just said, God, I trust you? Sat yesterday with someone who is probably in the latter part of their life here on this earth, tired of fighting. Tired of having less quality of life. But beyond a shadow of a doubt, trust that God's got her in his hands. Whatever God may desire, she's good with that. She's good with that. Yet we take the simplest of things. The simplest of things. Where tomorrow's paycheck is going to come from. How things are going to happen here. The things that we do within the church. And the first thing we want to do is take it out of God's hands and put it in ours. Because we need a plan. <laughs> 
We don't need a plan. We need to trust our God. God will give us a plan. We're looking at what the vision of Morris Creek is for the future. What would God have in store for this church? What you don't realize, the bulk of you, God's already given the vision. I thought that the vision would be given to me as the pastor some months ago when he laid this on my heart. I told you when we started this series on January, in January, I couldn't understand why he hadn't told me yet. I was expecting to have a vision and preach to that end. Guess what? God's chosen to reveal the vision one piece at a time through different people within the church. One day I will tell you the story. You don't even realize it. You're sitting in the middle of it right now. God's revealing this vision to the one sitting in the pew next to you, and that person doesn't even realize it. But it's being implemented. God's doing some powerful things in your midst, and you don't have a clue. You know what? I like it that way. I like it that way. I like the fact that I don't know. Because that means it's all God. I can't change a plan that I don't know what it is. And trust me, as a pastor, as one of those type D, A, C, the one who likes to be in control, whatever personality that is, I try to change it. <laughs> There's no doubt. But I'm so glad. I'm so glad that he just wants us to put our trust in him. Trusting not only for the plan, trusting for the provision, and trusting for the strength to accomplish that. And who knows that we can trust God? Anybody? You know, we can trust him with our health. We can trust him with our wealth. We can trust him with our family. We can trust him with our jobs. We can trust him in the good times. And Lord have mercy, we can certainly trust him in the bad times in our life. We know that. If you can trust God, if you can trust this God with your soul for all of eternity, can't you trust him with the few years of life you have on this earth? Think about it. You're going to put your eternity in the hands of an almighty God and say, I trust you that you're going to get me there. I trust you that nobody can steal me away. And God says, go share the gospel down the street. You say, God, I don't have the strength to do that. So you're going to trust a God to save you for eternity, but he can equip you and empower you to share the gospel with your neighbor? That is foolishness. The greatest thing he's ever done from you is snatch you from the hands of the devil to take you to heaven. Everything else is a cakewalk. We need to put our trust in God. How is it that we can come to the point of trusting God in everything? It's by understanding what he's doing in us. Understanding that which he is doing within you. God is doing a mighty work in all of his people. He's especially doing a mighty work within you. Think about it. It started with him rescuing you from that penalty of sin and eternity in a place called hell. From that, he saved you. We in church use a great big word called justification. He justified you. It's just as if you'd never sinned when you stand before God. Because what God sees is the blood of his precious son, Jesus Christ, that has washed you white as snow. But that's the start. That's not the ending. What happens then is he sets your feet upon the path that brings him the most glory. And as you walk that path, you are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the path that we call sanctification. It's between the point that you're justified in Christ and the point that you're glorified when you're taken to heaven. And it's the longest part of our physical life on earth in most cases. And that's the part that we're sanctified. Many of us, sadly to say, say, I have my ticket to heaven. I'm going to sit on the bus stool until the bus pulls up to get me. And then I'm going to heaven. And when you show up at heaven, you show up empty-handed. And you get to stand before an almighty God that outstretched his arms on a cross. And when he says, what have you done for me? You can say, I trusted in you for my salvation. And he goes, and? And? 
Is he going to deny you entrance? No. If you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him as your Lord and Savior, you're saved. But I would have a hard time believing that you're saved if you're not willing to do that which he's asked you to do. I really would. I know I would in my own life. You see, it started with him rescuing us, justifying us. It works through that sanctification to the point that he glorifies us when he takes us home. And it strange as it may seem to us, and especially some of those who preach the false gospel from the pulpit this day and time, this is not the best life we're going to have. You can buy the book and you can read the message, you can hear it preached that God has given you the best life now. Let me tell you this, if this is the best life that God's got for me, He ain't much of a God. This is not the best life God has for you. Living in this world is not the best that God has for you. No, God has more in store for us than we can even imagine. Than we can even imagine. And one day He's going to call us home to a place called heaven that we can't even describe in words. It's impossible to even describe in words. But until that day, until that day, He calls you home, He has a work to do in you so that you may do a work for Him. You see, and it's through the process of Him working in us that we come to understand the purpose of our life. If we understand the purpose of our lives individually, then connectively in the body of Christ, the church will understand its purpose and its vision. You know, God is interested in you. God is extremely interested in you. He wasn't just interested in you when you were a sinner. And interested in saving you, and now he's just left you alone. No, he's still interested in you. But it may not be exactly the way you think. It may not exactly be the way you think. See, God is more interested in his glory than your gain. He's more interested in his will than your wealth. He's more interested in in your holiness than your happiness. He's more interested in the praise that you give, not the possessions you imagine or you amass. God is more interested in your character than he is your comfort see we're quick to ask god to take away those things that cause us a little bit of pain but you know what god's most interested in you your character your character let's face it the discomfort of this world's not going to last long the longest you're going to be here is what a hundred years guess what you're going to be in heaven a hundred trillion years and that'll be the end of the first day You can't take the comforts of this life with you, but your character goes. Your character goes because that's who you are at heart. That's the thing that God is trying to change. What he wants to change in you is not something to last 100 years. He wants something to last for all of eternity, and that is your character. Who you are in Christ. Who you are to a lost and dying world. Who people see when they see you. And the only way that they can see Jesus is if you are being conformed to look like him. Sitting on a pew for an hour on Sunday morning and attending a Sunday school class is not going to make you look like Jesus. Let's just throw that out. Even the occasional ones who come on Wednesday night, that's not going to make you look like Jesus. What's going to make you look like Jesus is doing all that He commands. All that He commands so that you're loved by the Father and they come and indwell you to be conformed to the image of Christ. See, God desires... God desires total, total obedience. Us being completely 
in his hands, not just when there's a tragedy in life, not when there's just when there's a difficulty, not just when things don't seem to be going our way. He desires us to be obedient and faithful and trust in him in all things. Whether we be on the top of the mountain or the bottom of the valley, he wants us to trust in him. See, David did not put his trust in the things of life. Think about David's life. He didn't put his trust in the fact that God had said, you're the next king. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been an easy thing to trust in? You're the next king. Why am I running from the one that just got kicked out? I'm the next king. Y'all listen to me. We're going to take care of this. No. He didn't put his trust in the fact that God said, you're the next king. He didn't even look further back in his life and put in his trust in the fact that one day he picked up five smooth stones and a slingshot and knocked the guy between the eyeballs that everybody else in the land of Israel was scared of. His name was Goliath. He didn't put his trust in the fact that nobody else would stand up to him, but he had no problem. So it wasn't in his own strength, his own work, his own things. He didn't put his trust in that. He did not even trust in the fact that he was running from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him, yet David was innocent in the whole deal. So he didn't stand up and say, this isn't fair, God. I'm innocent. Stop it. He didn't put his trust in that. No, David put his trust in God. How do we know that? For David had found God to be completely faithful. Think back through his life. Think back through the things that had gone on. God had always been faithful. Been faithful to him and he knew that. And God had worked in David's life to bring him to the point that he was at that he may mold him and make him to be that which he wanted him to be. And he was using the things around him to do that. God didn't choose David because of what David brought to the table. God chose David the same reason he chose you because he wanted to work in him to bring him his glory, to bring God his glory. Have you ever thought that you may be in the circumstances that you're in today because of what God wants to do in you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought there may be things going on in your life right now that God's using to direct your life? Maybe God's using the tough times in your life to drive you to Him. Maybe He wants to show you that there is only one refuge from the difficulties in life, and that is Him. Maybe He's using some really dumb decisions in your life, some really dumb decisions in your life that you have made to cause you to want to get under His wing. I can tell you with certainty that God is using what is going on in your life to cause you to depend on Him. And He'll use whatever it takes. And what is the work that He is doing in each of us? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All of us want to write that on our mirror. We want to memorize that thing. That's good right there. This God that is my God that I trust in, who's working within me, He makes all things good in my life. That's what the Bible said. All things are going to work together for good. Why? He's my God. He's my God. All things are going to work for good. Well, I know how to worry about any problems. But you know there was a purpose in that statement that follows in the very next verse. That was Romans 8.28. Look at Romans 8.29 if you've got it open. Because the purpose is this. For whom He foreknew... For whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image, not of the pastor, not of the Sunday school teacher, not to the image of what you have in your mind for a good person. Who are you to be conformed to? Why, why did God do what he did? Why is he making things good? What, what is the hinge point that we be conformed to the image of his son? Anything short of that misses the mark.
And he says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, God is using the circumstances in your life to make your character like the character of Christ. As a human being, Christ had a lot to complain about. You realize that? He had a lot of things he could have complained about as a human being. The people around him trusted him when he was doing the things he wanted him to do, distrusted him when he wasn't, always coming up to him wanting something. He could even go to a wedding and sit in the back of the place and enjoy the festivities. They come to him and wanted him to go down to the cellar and get new wine for the party. They get in a boat and across an ocean. He's taking a nap. Why couldn't they take a nap? No, they were all worried. They had to wake him up. God had been working all day in a revival meeting, and they woke him up. Everywhere he went, there was somebody wanting. So he could have complained, <laughs> but he didn't. His character wouldn't allow him to complain. He, he was God. He was doing that which God had asked him to do. And sometimes God has to drive us from our refuge, as David said, from that refuge, that place of hiding, so that we can understand what we've made for ourselves. It isn't going to work. Isn't going to cut it. Like David was driven from his country because of Saul's hatred for him, even though David was, uh, was uh, innocent. David found himself in the wilderness alone, hiding in a cave when he wrote this psalm, if you remember. See, we need to recognize that that refuge that we have built for ourselves is really set up to fall. It's like building a house on the sand. When the storm comes, the house topples. Maybe our refuge we put in our ability to work, but there's going to come a day you won't physically be able to do that. Maybe our refuge is in our investments. And Lord knows, we know the stock market can be up today and down tomorrow and maybe just completely disappear. Maybe our refuge is in how we cope with the world. What we drink, what we take, who we have as our relationships in the world, how we cope. But you know all those things lead to one thing, destruction. See, we like David need to have a character, Psalm 57, 1, that says it's in the shadow of your wings alone. It's in just the shadow of your wings, God, that I will find my refuge. Let the storms come. Let the lightning strike. I'll be in, under the shadow of your wings. When you understand that God has a purpose for your life and it's not about you, it's about what He's doing in you, some of what God's doing in your life, some of those things you don't quite understand, Start making a little sense. They start making a little sense. So very quickly, the last point. God has a purpose for you. And if you will surrender to it, He will be faithful to fulfill it. If you will surrender to that which He's doing in your life, He will be faithful to fulfill it. How do we know that? He said there in that second verse, I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. The word translates performs there is actually the word gamar. Gemara, it's a word that has the connotation of completeness, of ending, of perfection, and in the doing of all things to completeness. What David is saying there, I will cry out to God Most High, the God who completes all things for me. See, David understood that by being in a refuge of God's wings and his protection, God was now responsible to do those things which he said he was going to do in David's life. And God is an amazing God. It reminds me of what David said in Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. David cries out to God and said, I know that you're going to perfect those things which you have started. David reminds us that God has begun a work in us at the day of salvation. 
And our God is a perfectionist. He is a perfectionist. God will complete that which he has done. Even when we make foolish decisions, God will still complete those. This is where I get a little personal in sermons. I don't do this very much, but I would like to say that I can look back, that I can look back on the history of my life and say, you know what? I've made some pretty great choices that's led me to stand in this pulpit today. Let me tell you, that's not the case. As a matter of fact, I would like to be able to look back in my life and say, you know, I've made quite a, a few fairly good choices that's brought me into the service of God to preach the gospel. But you know what? That's not the fact. That's not the fact. When I look back over the course of my life, I find that the abundance of the decisions that I made were pretty dumb. We're pretty dumb. What, what kind of decisions? I won't be specific because I'll have to deal with my wife later. Even though she's in the nursery, I'm sure she's probably being transmitted back that way. But for instance, places I chose to work because I needed the money more here than here, yet less godly there than here. But oh, I can deal with it. God's with me everywhere. <laughs> Wrong. What I chose to do for fun. Pretty dumb decisions. How I spent my weekends. You know, there was a time that I didn't go to church every weekend. Pastor said that, and we hired him. Huh. No, there was a time. There was a time I made excuses. It's just one weekend, and, and I'll stop and pray while we're doing whatever we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that works out. Take it up with God. Who I hung out with? <laughs> that ought to hit home with you. Who's your friends? Not your acquaintances, because it causes us to be in the world. It just causes us not to be of the world. Being of the world means you've got buddies that you can fight in, spend time with, hang out with, that don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's not being in the world. That's being of the world. Yes, you need to be acquainted. You need to have acquaintances, but you need to be careful. You need to be careful who speaks into your heart. If they're not speaking Jesus into your heart, you need to be speaking Jesus into their heart at all times, but you better not take their advice because it's not making you more like Christ. It's making you less like Christ. Yeah, I had some pretty, pretty dumb decisions. There's a whole list. I don't have time. Yet somehow God used those decisions and the circumstances that came with them because you got to understand sin has consequences. Just because God forgives you to sin does not mean the consequences are removed. There are circumstances that come out of the sin that you choose to do. And just because you realize I've done this and this could be the circumstance and you run to God and ask for forgiveness does not mean that he's going to remove the circumstance. There are men today that have had to step down out of pulpits because of dumb decisions in their life and God has forgiven them. Their congregation has forgiven them, but the circumstances of that which they have done have taken them out of the ministry. God forgave them completely, but the circumstance was not removed. It's no different in your life. When you sin, there are circumstances to that sin. And as, as I look back over my life, I realize it's not been a short time in coming that I understood what God had in store for me. You know, it, it's been a long and difficult process, quite honestly. It's been a long and difficult process. And the process started when I, like David, cried out for God's mercy and said, God, I need you. I need you above all other things. The process started in my life when I realized, God, I've messed this thing completely up. When I recognized running from God, running from God and doing things my own way was running away from God and to the point of destruction. When I realized the only way to have peace in my life, the only way to have any semblance of peace in my marriage, any semblance of peace in my relationships, any semblance of peace in my jobs, was to be at peace with God. And the only way to be at peace with God was to surrender to that which He had called me to do. No matter how big, no matter how small. And then to put my trust completely in the work that God had begun in me. 
a work that has been painful, is still painful. Work that causes pain sometimes and effort in your life. A work that will at times take me places that I'm extremely uncomfortable going. It's a work that will require me to yield every area of my life to his leading, not just the areas I think he would be best in. And that's difficult for a point of a personality, I guess it is. That's difficult. It is a work that requires me to completely surrender, not half in, not three quarters in, but all in. You know what it takes to be an effective Christian, conformed to the image of Christ? To be all in. You give him all the things you love. Your family, your money, your time, your church. It's all his. And it's a work that requires us to press in to God. The only way that we can accomplish that which God has purposed in our life is to, is to press into Him, to trust Him like David said in, in Psalm 57, 1, to find refuge in the shadow of His wings, to cry out and praise Him like David said that he did, to have a steadfast heart set on the glory of God. You see, you have to press in. You have to press into God. You have to desire to be under His wings. To do this requires us to paint ourselves out of that picture I talked about Andy Stanley describing sin as the paintbrush that we were handed and we, ha we painted ourselves into the center as the center of our world. We need to take that paintbrush, give it to God and say, God, you fix the picture. It starts with us saying, God, you fix the picture. I'm not the center of God. You are. I don't want to be the center of my universe. I don't want to be the center. Only when you say, I don't want to be the center, does God reorder your universe to fulfill His purpose in you. So how do you answer the question, does my life have purpose? The answer to the question is yes. But only will that purpose come to the surface if we understand in God is where that purpose is at. And it's bigger than anything you can imagine. There is nothing that God won't put on the table for you if you'll trust in Him. Just remember, God has a purpose in your life. It's not about you. God has a purpose in your life. It's about what He's doing in you. And God has a purpose in your life. And if you'll surrender to the purpose, God will fulfill it. How many of you would love to know that God's going to fulfill that which He has started in you for His glory? That even in the bad times, God's going to be glorified. You know, this morning you may not know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You may be wandering aimlessly in a world, feeling lost. And there's a reason you feel lost. Because even as a sinner, you were created in the image of God. And God desires to have a relationship with you. And until you have that relationship with Him, you will not only be eternally lost, you'll be lost in your life in this world. You won't feel like there's ever an end to anything. You won't feel like there's any meaningful relationships that last. You won't feel like anybody's on your side. You know, there's only one way to have peace in life on this earth, is to have peace with the great I Am, the Almighty God. How do you gain that peace? Recognize them? You've messed it all up. <laughs> You've made decisions that there are consequences for, and you are absolutely reaping the consequences of that, and you want that sin in your life to stop. There's only one way sin in your life can stop. It's by 
coming to trust in the stopper of that sin, the one who has already paid the price for that sin, and that's Jesus Christ. You must understand that you have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the only way to be back in right relationship and glorifying to God is to accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Does it make sense that a man would get on a nondescript hill and hang on two pieces of wood and it save you? No, it makes absolutely no sense. I recognize as a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, thinking that makes absolutely no sense. You're right. The Bible says it makes no sense. It says it's foolishness. Unless it's to one who believes in what was done on that cross. And then it's not foolishness. Then it's life. It's life eternal. This morning you can step from darkness to life by trusting in what Jesus Christ did for you. Now church, if you've trusted, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, let me ask you, does the purpose of your life show up in your life? If I were to ask you to make a list of that which God has given for you to do, or just a purpose statement for your life, could you tell me what that was this morning? Sure, we could all go to the Great Commission and say, we're, we're called to go share the gospel to the uttermost ends of the world. Well, with that answer comes the question, why haven't you done it? You see, we all have a purpose, and I frankly will tell you, your purpose is not to come listen to me for 40 minutes or whatever it has been this morning on a Sunday. That's part of your growing process, but that's not your purpose. Your purpose is to do everything you can do to bring God Almighty glory. And it's by bringing Him glory that others are attracted to Jesus Christ. And then you have to be willing to tell them the story of what Jesus Christ did. That old thing, I'm going to live like Christ, so others come to know. Matter of fact, it was a statement attributed to somebody, uh, share the gospel, and if, if necessary, use words. Let me just tell you, it's necessary. You're not going to live a life like Christ and anybody get saved. Do you understand that? That's a cop-out. To say, I'm going to live like Christ, they're going to come to know Him, then you just said the Bible's a lie because the Bible said faith in Christ comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God and your life ain't speaking words. You must live like Christ so they want to hear the message, but then you've got to share it. If you don't share it, your life is without purpose. This morning, church, I challenge you. If God were to stand here today, say, so when's the last time you physically told someone about Jesus? What would be your answer? If it's anything other than the last opportunity I had this morning, yesterday, whatever it may be, you're in sin. It's the way around it. The purpose of your life is falling short. How do I know that? Look at the end of any of the Gospels. There's your directive. Go share the Gospel. Church, what are we doing to share the gospel? You may say, Pastor, you just spent 45 minutes doing it. You do realize it's not my job to share the gospel. It's my job to grow you in the faith to the point you share the gospel. You realize that's what the Word says? I'm not an evangelist. I didn't have a, a meeting this morning for you to bring lost people to to hear about Jesus. I'm glad you did. Yes. But do you realize that's not the same as sharing the gospel? What's the church's purpose? To be unified and growing in Christ in such a manner that others see you and go, what is it about them? What is it? So that they could see that God is God. How else would it make sense that people this diverse from different places could all come together for one function, for one purpose? How else, other than God, could that happen? It can't. Church, not only are there those here that need to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, 
there are those here who need to fall on their face before God and ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness for things they've done, yes, but most importantly for things they have not done, which is share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone you know. Church, guess what? We need to be on our face before God too. There's empty seats. There's empty pews. There's empty time in our life that we could be filling with those that we have shared the gospel with. If you had to give an account for your gospel witness today, what would it be? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.